Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this week for about almost a year as we are kicking off a year-long series that we're calling the Year of the Bible. And uh, again, this is, so we did our 21 days of prayer and fasting a year ago, and right at kind of near the middle of that, God just dropped this idea into my spirit, and all year long, I've been kind of prepping and thinking and planning and working things out and figuring how we're going to get 66 books of the Bible into 52 weeks in the year. We're going to do it. We're going to make it happen. And so I'm excited to start today with our first series within that we're going to call Origins. So if we're going through the Bible week by week, chronologically, it's going to help to start at the beginning, right? At the very beginning in this series, Origins. So this week is going to be different from maybe next week and the week after. We're going to approach different books differently. So uh, today we'll look at the main theme of Genesis, which is where we're going to be today. And then next week might be a different idea or a different attack or approach to that book. And so each week's going to be sort of uh, fresh and different in how we are going to approach this. But today, we are going to start in origins in the book of Genesis, the beginning, right? And I'll just say this, there is so much in Genesis. If you're doing a Bible reading plan, you're probably still in Genesis right now. Uh, so you're in, the fun, you're in the fun book for right now. Just hang on till like mid-February. You'll, you'll figure out what I'm, where, where I'm going when you see what's ahead, right? But Uh, I'm excited about Genesis. There's so much to it. I could probably spend a year in Genesis. So it's not, I'm not going to preach that long today. I'm just saying there's so much there that I could, we could spend a year or more in this book. We're going to get through it in in one day. We're going to kind of look at an overarching theme of the opening book of the Bible in the Old Testament. And I'm going to start out by telling you what the theme is, what the main idea is today. The book of Genesis reveals to us that God has a plan. Now, there could be other themes in Genesis, I'm sure there are, but how we're going to approach Genesis today is this idea that God has a plan. We're going to see this in three different ways and in four different accounts throughout this overview of this book of Genesis. So there's three ways that we'll see God has a plan. So let's just jump right into the first one today and see how God has a plan. We see that because he can, from nothing, create something or really everything. But the first way that we see that God has a plan is from nothing to something. So if we're going to start at the beginning, let's read from the beginning, shall we? Genesis 1, verse 1. Let's see how this entire book, this entire thing of the Bible begins. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. So let's go back to that first verse slide there for me, in the beginning slide. I I, I want you to see something. Maybe you've seen this before, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, just 
hang with me for a minute as we go into something that you might think is, I don't know about that. Just, just bear with me, okay? What I want you to notice, the first, the first thing about cre- the creation story, what God does first in these opening verses is he basically makes the materials, the raw materials with which he's going to do everything else. He kind of does an outline. Boom, Genesis 1-1, there's an outline here. So think about it in terms of if an artist had to make their own paintbrushes or they had to make their own canvas before they can paint. That's what God's doing here in, in really in verse, in verse 1 and really 2 and 3 here. Or uh, there's a show that we watched over the holiday break called Blown Away. I don't know if you've seen that. It's on Netflix. It's about glass blowing. It's a competition. These glass blowing artists have these different things they have to try to create every week and one's eliminated till there's a winner. So they, they start with just this little thing, right? This little thing on the end of a tube that they have to heat and blow into and shape and surface and smash and do all the, until they make these huge, amazing, ornate glass creations. So I think about Genesis 1 in that way, where not only is God starting with this little bit on the end of this long tube, but he has to make that first, okay? So he makes the raw materials first, and then he fills it in. Another way to think of it is sort of like a paint-by-number, so think of Genesis 1, 1 and 2 here as God first outlining the paint by number. For, there, there's nothing there. I guess first he has to make the paper, right? And he has to invent ink. And then he draws the outline of this thing, puts all the numbers where they need to go. And then after what we just read here, the rest of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 show us how he fills it in, how he colors in all of the spots. This shows that God had a plan. There was nothing, and then he made the raw materials, the form. See, it says it was formless, empty, and dark. So there's the form, there's the outline, and then the rest of Genesis 1 and 2 is him filling it in day by day. So water, land, plants, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, he fills that in after he does this initial sort of boom sort of thing here. So here's, so with each of these three ways that we're going to see God's plan, there's going to be an option. There's going to be a choice that we can make on how we view this part of God's plan or this aspect of God's plan. So there's, with this one, from nothing to something, we have an option of asking two questions about the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2. Now there's one question that we typically ask right off the bat, but it's actually there's a better question that we probably could and should be asking about the the I was going to say Christmas, it's over, the creation narrative, okay? So the question that we normally ask about Genesis 1 and 2 is how. That's not what Genesis is concerned about, okay? Genesis is concerned about showing us who. Okay, go with me on a journey here, okay? So when we read the creation account, we usually ask, how did this happen? Like specifically, I see the days here, but how... Was each day a 24-hour day, literal 24-hour day? Was each day like a longer time period? What, how did these things fill in? All the gaps that we don't see on the page of the Bible, how did that happen? What about the dinosaurs? That's a great question, right? We ask about the how when it comes to the creation narrative. There have been books and books and books and books written about this. I've read a lot of them. There have been lectures and lectures given over this type of thing. I've listened to a lot of them. There have been debates over creation, and is it this way or was it that way? I've listened to a lot of those, okay? But Genesis 1 and 2 is not trying to answer the question, how did this happen, okay? It's, that's not the focus. Now, now I would say human-wise, human science is trying to figure that out. One of the endeavors of one of the types of sciences is how did all of this come about? And there are theories and there are ways, and I'll just tell you, there's no th- the word theory indicates that no one ex- exactly knows. 
So that's why asking the question how by itself is kind of a waste of our time and energy if that's the only question we're asking about Genesis 1 and 2. If that's the only thing we're looking for is how did it happen. Now, there's some nobility to asking that question, and there's, I'm interested in looking at the universe and things about that. That's great. But if that's all we're looking for, it's, we're still going to be empty because we're never going to exactly know how it happened. No matter how advanced we become in science, unless we can go back in time to Genesis chapter 1, we're never going to know exactly how that happened. Even Genesis 1 doesn't tell us right exactly how it happened. The focus is who did it. Genesis is the beginning of a larger story by God about God. He's the main focus. He's the main character woven throughout all of Scripture. It's not how he does things, but that he is doing them. So God wants us to know that regardless of exactly how he did it, he did it. And Genesis gives us a basic skeletal outline in a simple way to give us the basic idea. It's kind of like this. When a five-year-old asks you how babies are made, okay, You give them a basic skeletal outline to give them the main idea, don't you? I mean, maybe you don't, sicko, right? No, no, but but we do. If a five-year-old asks me how babies are made, I'm going to be broad and basic and give them the general idea. Maybe I'm going to tell them the stork came. Maybe I'm just going to lie to them. Probably not, but still. We figure out a creative way to explain to the proper audience what they need to know. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is. It is not a detailed account of every single little thing and all the time periods. And there have been, you know, people that have tried to go back and date creation to 4004 B.C. People, people that love God, that love the Bible, can believe that. I believe that, right? People that love God and love the Bible can, I think, can believe, intellectually, honestly say, the universe must be older than that. That's why seeing the creation narrative in this way is so important. It's so key that we see it in its proper context. This is an ancient culture in their own way trying to write down how they understood everything being created. That's what this is, okay? So the question again is not how. That's not the point of Genesis at all. It's not a scientific book. It's a historical book. And it's to not get too in the weeds here, but it is an ancient historical book. So the way that they would see things would be different than how we know them to be now. The way they would explain and express what they see and experience is going to be vastly different than how we know it happens now. Like we know that the sun doesn't rise and fall on the back of a chariot, right? We know that. We know that now, but they didn't, they didn't know that then. That's how different myths and different sort of ancient people groups would have come about. They would try to explain in the best way they could, in a broad sense, how things work. So again, it's not how, it's who. This takes the pressure, again, I think, off of unnecessary arguments about this topic. Again, it's fine. To, I love studying creation and the universe, but it's not worth arguing with people about little things here and there. Or this school of thought has to be the way, and you're just an idiot, right? That does no one any good at all. So if we can view, I think, Genesis 1 from nothing to something with the question of who in mind, it gives us that, uh, that room to not be backed into a corner, to not start endless arguments that never are solved, to not in, you know, the scientific field to be seen as a foolish person. Well, you believe, well, no, there's some, there's some room here for this view. But again, the focus is who. 
The point of Genesis 1 and 2 is this all-powerful, eternal being made everything from nothing. He made order from chaos because he has a plan. That's the point. That's all the creation account is trying to get to us. That's, we can take more from that if we want, but that's the main idea. Before we move on, let me quickly, I'm going to do this with all three of these, take this in a different, more personal direction to apply it, this same idea, to our lives. Here's, here's how I'm going to do that with this one. If God can make everything or something from nothing, and if he can, in a moment, reveal his plan for the vast universe, for all that has ever been made, then I believe that he can reveal his plan in your life. I believe that he can do the same thing. He can make something from nothing in your life. Because you may feel like a failure. You may think, man, I make these same resolutions every year. I screw up every time. Like for 20 years, I've said I'm going to lose that weight and I'm heavier than ever. I'm a failure. You may have said, I th- I'm gonna, I, every year I, I'm going to be a nicer neighbor and every year I get crankier and angrier. I can't do it. Okay? I have no value, no worth. Maybe you feel like you are without purpose. But let me tell you where you're wrong. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God made man in his image. So it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. The fact that God made you in his image automatically places upon you value, worth, and purpose. You may not feel that. You may not have discovered that yet, but it's there. So if that truth has been dormant in your life, Just go with this belief, God has a plan for my life. He can make something from nothing. You may feel lost or without direction, but God always has a plan. You may feel confused or afraid about the future, but God always has a plan. God makes no accidents. God makes no mistakes. God sees you, God loves you, and God created you on purpose, with a purpose. Again, you may look around and say, I don't see that. There is zero evidence of that being accurate or true about me, my life, my situation. And I would say, stop looking at the nothing and just believe that from that God can make something because God has a plan. So we want to trust in his plan. We may not know how, but we can know who, and that's enough. It's enough. So we move on in Genesis to see that God has a plan now in this way. So not only, this one seems obvious, but I I went with this one second because we're moving chronologically, okay? It would stand to reason that if God can make something from nothing, then he can also do this, but we'll see how God can also make uh, from a little bring a lot. How from a little God can bring a lot. I have two examples I want to share about this way of God's plan. The first one, we're going to move forward, Genesis chapter 6, another famous story here in the first book of the Bible. Genesis 6, starting at verse 11. It says, now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. Man, things have really changed, haven't they? Wow. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, next guy we're going to talk about, I've decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. So when he tells Noah, build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. 
put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. So Noah, the story of Noah, is a story of an impossible task with insurmountable odds and an impending timeline and a feeling of inadequate preparation. That's the story of Noah. An impossible task, insurmountable odds with an impending timeline and a feeling of inadequate preparation. What we read right before this is interesting. It seems the Genesis account is telling us that up until the flood of Noah in Genesis 6, there had never been rain on the earth as we know it. So now the earth sort of watered itself. There was a built-in sprinkler system that was sort of everywhere. But rain from the sky, from the clouds to the earth had never happened before. So it would obviously make sense for God to tell Noah hey, this thing that's never happened before is going to happen to a degree that's going to flood the entire planet, so build a boat out here in the desert. Just seems like something God would obviously do. It seems like a thing that he would obviously say. It it seems ridiculous, actually, right? So there's this huge task Noah has before him to build this huge boat. So he's got this big thing, this, this thing that seems like a lot in front of him, but what does he have to work with? He's got himself and three sons, and basically no tools to build this boat. That's a huge boat. So almost like God in Genesis 1, first Noah and his sons are going to have to build the tools to build the boat. They're going to have to construct these these huge sort of tools to cut down enough trees and strip enough trees and shape enough trees to make this huge thing. So, But here's the thing with this, and we'll see it in the next person too. The little thing that God needed from Noah was just him to simply trust him. That that seems like a little thing, but for Noah, again, think about how big that is to him. This thing that God says is going to happen, I don't even exactly know what it looks like. It's never happened before. It's going to flood the entire earth, and I have to build this huge thing. Me and my three boys, we have to build the tools to build a huge boat. It just seems like a lot, but from a little came a lot. God had a plan here, and it's interesting that Noah was the plan. In this case, Noah was the plan. We'll come back to Noah in a second, but let's move on to the same idea here, but the next main person in Genesis, and that's Abraham, who, as we're going to read here, is Abram still. So let's fast forward a few hundred years after Noah. We'll come back to him, as I said, in a minute. But now we're in Genesis chapter 12. So just as God appeared to Noah, he's now going to appear to Abram. And here's what he says. Genesis 12, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord has said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, you probably know the story of Abram or Abraham, and you know that he kind of turns out to be a pretty big deal. But in this moment, in Genesis 12, when God first calls him, who is Abram? He's a nobody. He's a guy, okay? And not only is he just a guy, he is a pagan guy. He is, by all accounts, a polytheistic pagan because every ancient culture worshipped many gods. That was the way the world worked. That's what separated the nation of Israel, and this God from any other people group in the ancient world and from any other deity. As he's like, there's one of me, only one of me, and that's who you're going to worship. 
that, that's what separated them. So God's starting a brand new thing with just a random guy. So if you read in the previous chapter, it says he's from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. So later on in history, that becomes Babylon. If you're interested where that is today, it's in modern-day Iraq. So this is where Abram's living in Iraq, okay, in the desert. When this being, this God, speaks to him and tells him, I'm going to bless you, but it's just, he's just a guy. He's a nobody from nowhere with no history. I mean, he might have some money, but other than that, he's nothing. He's nobody. And God makes this huge promise of blessing to him. Let's move on a little bit later in, in the story of Abram and see how this uh, continues on. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 says, Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and, will, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all of my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so, no, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. What God does these years later with Abram is he reinforces his plan. Because again, it says sometime later. So God gave this promise to Abram to go and do these things and I'll bless you and make you a mighty nation. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. But sometime later, and Abram is still just a guy. He lives somewhere else now. He's doing something else now, but he's still just a guy. So what God does is he comes back to him and reinforces his plan. Hey, I know you've been waiting for a while and nothing's materialized. I'm still cooking in the kitchen, Abram. Things are happening behind the scenes. You can't see it or perceive it. You don't feel anything. You don't feel any different. You don't see any progress, but trust my plan. But Abram notices a problem with the plan. You're promising me descendants, God says, even as numerous as the stars in the sky. The problem is, God, I don't have any children. The last time I checked, descendants equals children, right? So that's a problem. That's a major roadblock in this plan. God, how is this going to happen? But I believe what God is teaching Abram here is, if you trust me, I can turn a little into a lot. That's what God is trying to show Abram, even through a season of waiting. Even through a time where things aren't happening, things aren't moving, nothing's progressing, nothing's changing, he wants him to trust in the plan. I can turn a little into a lot. And so both Noah and Abraham, their next steps that they have to do seem kind of small, but they're really huge. And from that next step comes another next step and another next step. And then before you know it, we have a huge boat built by Noah wow, I can't you look back and think at the scale of this thing. And four dudes with minimal tools did that because they followed the plan. Little step by little step came a lot. We see the same thing here with, with Abram. Let's go back to, so in Genesis 12, when God calls him, we'll see Abram's response and how important that was. And then Genesis 15, again, we'll see how his next step was so important. So back to Genesis 12. So God says, go from the land that you're from, leave your family, which for some of us, we'd say, God, could you please tell me to do that, right? Leave your family. 
But he says, leave and go to a land I will show you. Here's what happens. Back to Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So in some ways, this seems like a little thing, doesn't it? God says, leave. Oh, let's just pack up and leave. It's not a big deal. It's a huge deal because he doesn't know where he's going. He has no, there's no GPS, you know, recalculating, recalculating. There's none of that going on. He has no sense of where God's leading him. God just says, leave where you are and go somewhere else until I basically tell you to stop and stay there. And Abram does it. That's a huge thing. But it's a simple thing, isn't it? His simple trust and obedience was all that God needed to make something great from him. And then, again, then when God revisits him many years later in Genesis 15 and says, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, here's Abraham, Abram's response, verse 6 of Genesis 15, and Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. It was Abram's small, simple faith in God's promise that made him the father of multitudes. That's all it was, just a simple belief. I believe in God's plan. I don't see a lot here. There's not a lot to work with. There's very little to work with. There's next to nothing to work with, but I'm going to believe in God's plan. But as we said, with both men here in this second way of seeing God's plan, they they had an option as well. They had a choice to make on how they responded to what God's plan was for them, and we have the same option as well. So the option that they face that we can also face is either worry or worship. When it comes to God's plan, we have an option. I can worry about the little that I see, that I can understand, that I can perceive, that I can make out, that I can wrap my brain around. I can worry about that, or I can choose to worship the God of the plan and believe that what he says will happen. Because for Noah and Abram, did they have questions? You better believe they had some questions. Did they face uncertainty? Yes. How am I going to build this boat? Where, Abram's like, where am I going? How am I going to have descendants with no children? They had uncertainty and questions. Did they understand everything about God's plan? No. Did they feel equipped to fulfill God's plan? No. But they revealed this, and I think we can apply this to our lives too. With God's plan working in your life, the greatest ability is availability. And that's a good sports thing too, you know, next man up kind of thing. If you're available and you're ready to run and you're ready to work and you're ready to play, let's put them in the game. That's all God's looking for. The greatest ability is availability. Because you might not feel equipped to do what you feel God's calling you to do. All you got to do is be available. It's his plan, right? It's his plan. It's his power working within you to fulfill his plan for his glory. He's got a lot at stake here to make sure the plan works. So he's going to do everything that he can with, with, with your little help that we can give him, right? To just be available, to see what God's plan can do in your life. So despite unknowns and our feelings of incapability, we just want to say yes to God. And that's worship. That's what worship is. So in Romans 12, Paul says that we give our lives as a living sacrifice to God. That's being available. He says that's a life of worship, just saying yes to God. Whatever the plan looks like, I'm in. Wherever that takes me, I'm in. However I don't feel equipped to do it, I'm in. That's what God's looking for. On the other hand, though, worry is the biggest roadblock to the plan happening, to God's plan being fulfilled in your life. Worry keeps us on the sidelines. 
Worry is a waste of time and energy. Even Jesus says it doesn't add a day to your life or a cubit to your stature. It does nothing. Worry can become a distraction in your life. We try to control things that are out of our control. That's what worry is. I obsess over this thing I cannot change. I cannot make happen. It's a distraction. It's a waste of time and energy. Worry is simply an excuse for inaction. The constant what-ifs about God's plan or the what-ifs about this big decision or the what-ifs about the next step or the next stage or what, what, what if it fails? What if God doesn't come through? What if I look foolish? And then that's our excuse for inaction. Well, because I didn't know how it was going to turn out, I didn't do it. A lot of things, we, we would not have electricity in this building if people had kept saying, well, I don't know, I'll look really foolish if I fail. Uh, it's going to be really hard. What if it's too hard? What if it's too complicated, right? The what-ifs are an excuse for inaction. Worry is an excuse for inaction. And then worry is debilitating and defeating. Because eventually, too much worry over too long a period of time, we just give up. Well, I haven't done it yet. It's never going to happen. God hasn't come through yet. I guess he failed. I guess he forgot about me, little old me over here. I'm a nobody. You know, he said he had big plans, but I'm not seeing it. So I'm just, you know, I'm done. That's it. That's over. The like, that's the, only, that's the only way God's plan will not and cannot work is if we give up on the plan. So we don't want to do that. So this year, don't worry, but worship. This year, don't doubt, but believe. Because you might say, I believe God has big plans, but how can he use somebody like me? Well, he used a nobody named Noah, a nobody like Abram. You look at the Bible, they're full of nobodies. That's all they are. And God used them to do big things. From a little came a lot. You might even say, you know what, this year I feel like God is encouraging me to maybe be a bigger giver, a generous giver. But I, is that little bit I'm going to add going to make a big difference? From a little, God can do a lot, right? He can do a lot. Maybe you want to take a big step of faith this year in an, in an area of your life, but you're what if I fail miserably? And I've told everybody, you know, I'm trying to read the Bible through this year, and then, you know, it's November 5th, and I'm still in Genesis well, more than likely, I'm still in Leviticus, you know. The, the dead, you know, the cemetery of Bible reading plans is Leviticus. So, you know, you're going to, it's okay. Take that step. Be available. Don't worry. Worship. Maybe you think, you know, this year I'm going to share my faith like crazy. I'm going to tell everybody that I work with, everybody that I live next to, everybody that I meet at the store about Jesus. But then you make that and you're like, I don't have the words to do that i mean i'm incapable of sharing like what what am i and then you you just worry yourself out of out of what god might do through those interactions so this year we want to believe that god can make a lot out of a little we want to trust that god has a plan and that we instead of worrying about what we see or don't see we want to worship the god who is in charge of the plan Here's the third way that we see god's plan it's the last third of the book of genesis it's about the story of joseph Again, the last third of this uh, book of the Bible shows us that f even from a mess, God can make something marvelous from it. That's what the story of Joseph is about. So I'll just recap it really quick, and then we'll apply it before we are done today. So Joseph comes from a very dysfunctional family. Like, you think your family's messed up? Joseph's family's messed up. His dad has the same problem that his grandfather and great-grandfather had in that they pick favorite children. It doesn't go well for this family. It goes so poorly for Joseph, in fact, that right, the favoritism that he receives from his father creates such jealousy in his brothers, they decide to kill him. Now, I know you've told your siblings before, I'm going to kill you. 
I know you probably gotten in fistfights and wrestling matches with your siblings, but you never really were going to kill them, were you? Don't admit that. I'll look away while you raise your hands. I see that hand, you know. They literally made a plot to kill their brother. And then they thought, well, no, let's just, we, we can make a quick buck. We see a traveling caravan from Egypt. We'll sell him as a slave, make some money, but tell our dad he's dead and we're done with our brother forever. So that's what they do. Joseph becomes a slave in a foreign country. While a slave, he's falsely accused of raping his boss's wife. Not a good thing, even though he's innocent of that charge. So he's falsely imprisoned and just going to rot there. What's God going to do with this mess? What's God going to do with, with this? So while he's in there, he gets a couple of cellmates to make a long... You should read the story of Joseph if you haven't. It's a great story. In, in this cell, a couple of cellmates come in. He, he has a, interprets a dream of both of them. One of them gets out of jail just as Joseph had predicted. And on the way out, he says, hey, I'll remember you, Joe. I'll tell the big guy, I'll put a, a good word for you with, with Pharaoh, get you out of here. And he's immediately forgotten. So... He, there's no way out now. What is God going to do with this mess? There's not much that he can do until Pharaoh has some dreams that just keep him up at night for days and days and days and weeks and weeks. No one can interpret the dream. No one knows what they mean, but they don't sound very good. And so then suddenly the cellmate who's, been, who's now at the right hand of Pharaoh says, hey, I remember Joe in prison. He interpreted our dreams. They were true. He was right. Maybe, maybe he can interpret your dreams. So Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dreams. And here's the thing with Joseph. God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dreams, yes. But with that interpretation, God revealed his plan. He tells Pharaoh what to do. There's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. So the plan should be, in my humble opinion, you know, your majesty, Pharaoh, is to store up all this extra surplus grain in the good years so we can survive and thrive during the famine. The Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph's interpretation of the dream and God's plan through that dream, he promotes him to vice Pharaoh, basically, second in command in all of Egypt, in charge of this famine problem. You got a 14-year project, buddy. Good luck. And so what he follows God's plan. They store up grain and extra food and supplies for seven years of plenty, and then right on, right on time, famine comes, no rain, crops dry up, animals die, it's a bad scene. However, Egypt is thriving because God had a plan. So in the middle of his seven years, his brothers come to Egypt to buy grain because they're suffering from the famine, right? And they come before Joseph not knowing that it's their brother 20 or so years later. And there's, it's, there's a fun cat and mouse game that brothers will play with one another. You should read it if you haven't. But then in the end, he reveals his identity to them and says, hey, I'm your brother Joseph that you thought was dead, that you sold into slavery. Now I'm in charge of this whole operation. How do you like me now, bros? Right? <laughs> and in the end, they are reunited as a family. So what we see here is a 20, 25-year journey that was a mess. I mean, it was mess upon mess upon mess upon setback upon impossible thing upon cruelty. You just name it. But God made something marvelous from that. And Joseph, he saw that. Here's how he kind of near the end of his life talking to his brothers now. Here's what he says to them. Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. 
So Joseph realized that God brought something marvelous from his mess. God's plan prevailed. Let me take it one step further, though. I want to look at two key words from this verse for just a second. It seems to me, from reading Joseph's own firsthand view of what's happened to him, I believe he thinks that the mess was part of the plan. I know it's a big thing, but, but look again at what he says. He says, God intended it. God didn't accident it. God didn't just happen to make it happen. It He intended it for good. He says, he brought me to this position. How else is a 17-year-old Hebrew kid from the desert ever going to become vice Pharaoh? There is no other scenario in which that's going to happen except for the mess in which Joseph continually finds himself in. There's no other way. You can compute the odds for eternity, and you're never going to find another way that God's going to bring him to that position. It's not going to happen. Joseph saw the suffering I endured, the pain I endured, the, the days and nights of crying, the, uh, the treatment of my own brothers, of my boss, of those around, being forgotten about in prison. All that was on purpose. It was intended for God to bring me here, to get me to this point, to save the entire region of the world. I'm not going to try to make a doctrine on that. We'll talk more about suffering next week. I'm not going to make a doctrine on that, but I think that's how Joseph easily perceived his mess. It was part of the plan, and even through this mess, there was a plan. Through the mess, God made something marvelous. Think about that perspective. Let me ask you this as we begin to close. Do you find yourself in a mess today? Maybe you made the mess that you're in. Maybe you are at fault. It is your fault. You did it, right? Maybe that's where you are. Are you a hot mess? Right? Maybe, that, maybe yep, that describes me. Ding, 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 you know. Can I just tell you, from that mess, God can make something marvelous. Through your mess, he can do something great with that. You would say, well, no, no, no. I, I am too messy. You know, you can say clean up on aisle 10 all day long. And there's, not enough, there's not enough custodians in the world that's going to clean up my life. Right? God's got a pretty big mop and a pretty big bucket. He can handle it. All right? He can use any mess. You might say, no, I'm from the wrong family. I'm from the wrong side of town. I'm a screw-up. I'm a failure. I don't have the right credentials. You don't know where I've been or what I've done or what I've said. And I would say this, no mess is too big that God can't make something marvelous from it. Right? You just can't. There, there's nothing to, we sang it this morning, there's nothing that our God can't do. Maybe you would even say, you know what, I, I, okay, whatever, but I'm too sinful for this holy God to love me. And I would say, Join the club. I am a charter member of that club. Too sinful for God to love, yet he does by his grace. Anyway, that's kind of what God does. That's kind of what separates him from any other being in the universe, is that he chooses to seek out those who have offended him by sending his son to die for them, to make a way to have a relationship with him. That's what God does. That's his specialty. That's what he does. Maybe you're just beaten down with the mess in your life, like Joseph. I've been used, I've been abused, I've been mistreated, I've been lied about, I've been abandoned, I've been forgotten, I've been told you're nothing, you're worthless, you're a lost cause. Let me just say this about maybe that's your mindset. Again, that's who God came for. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. 
I didn't come for those who are found, but for those who are lost and searching. So if maybe that fits, you're like, I'm just in a tailspin. My life's out of control. I'm filled with worry and despair and defeat. I'm just beaten down. It's over. There's no way God could do anything with that. I would say you're wrong. Genesis shows us that you're wrong. God has a plan. He can turn something messy into something marvelous. So let me just, I'm going to skip one thing, and then I'm going to, I'm going to just want to, no, I'm not going to stop. I'm, I'm not going to skip one thing. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Thank you for the permission I was giving myself anyway. No, I'm just, I, I, don't, I was going to skip this, but I'm just not. I'll do it quickly. Like the other two things, we have an option when it comes to this part of God's plan. Okay? So here's the option. We can either ask why or we can ask what. So when it comes to your mess, you can ask, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God cause this? Why didn't God help me or protect me or save me or keep me or whatever? We can ask that, but I think a better question to ask is what? What can God do with this mess if I give it to him? Okay, how can God show up? How can God show his strength and power? So here's again another way to view those options. When it comes to our mess, we can wallow in self-pity or we can walk in spiritual power. That's the option that lays before us in our mess. I can wallow in self-pity and ask why, or I can walk in spiritual power and say, what can God do with this? So will you give God your mess? Will you give it to him? Will you stop squirming in it, rolling in it, rubbing it all over yourself like it's oil, you know? Like, just, just don't. Just give it to him, and he can make something marvelous from it. God has a plan. From something came everything. From a little comes a lot, and even from the messiest of situation comes something marvelous as we allow God to work out his plan and be available for his plan.